Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision, brought to you by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. My name is Dr. Bill Takeshta, and this evening I'm very, very pleased to talk about a very, very exciting topic, which is gene therapy. Now, many of you may have heard of the term genes, or you might be aware of DNA and chromosomes, but we really want to go ahead and explain more in depth about this very, very complicated aspect of health as well as cellular development. As we know, the tissues of the body are made up of cells, and all of these different types of cells, they do form together different types of tissue. So, for example, our skin is made up of different types of epidermal cells, and it creates a tissue, so it covers our muscles and our bones. Similarly, in the eye, we know that there are other types of cells. In the retina, we have rod and cone cells and ganglion cells, and together, these cells do form tissues, and this tissue is then the retina, which then absorbs light from those things that we see, and it sends an electrical signal to the brain so that we could then process it. So when we think about the development of the eyes and the development of different structures of the eye, we have to then think, how does this take place? What is involved in this mechanism? Well, we can think back to some of the earlier research that goes back where there were doctors and researchers who were trying to understand what is inside an individual cell. And when we look with special types of microscopes, we see that inside the cell, the cell has something that is called a nucleus. And the nucleus contains the DNA, also known as chromosomes, or other times people will use these terms synonymously with genes. So inside the nucleus of the cell, there is something that is called the chromosome. And what we find if we do remove the chromosome from the nucleus and we study it, we see that this particular type of chromosome is made up of DNA, also known as deoxyribonucleic acid. There were two very, very famous researchers, Watson and Crick, who identified the structure of the DNA. And when we think about what the DNA would look like, it really looks as though you were to get ribbon, the ribbon that wraps a present. And if you had two of them connected together, similar to the way that one might imagine a ladder appearing, and then you have another copy of it, and it's all twisted and tangled up. So when they unraveled this particular type of material, they looked and inspected it to find that it was really very, very complicated in how it was oriented. It wasn't just randomly twisted and rotating, but it was very, very specific as to how it was organized. In addition, when they unraveled this DNA in the chromosome, what they found was that there were little components, and each of these components are called a nucleotide. Now, these nucleotides, they were ordered in a specific order. And let's just say for simplicity, we call it nucleotide A, and there's B, C, and D. Well, what they found was that along these strands 
of the DNA, you could have AAA, and then you could have BBB, you could have CCC, DDD, and any other combination. It could be ABC, ABD, and many, many different types of combinations. And they're very interested to wonder why it has such a very, very random type of order. What they later found was that the order of these nucleotides are very, very critical for the protein synthesis within the cell. In other words, there is a structure that would be able to read the sequence of these three nucleotides and based on the sequence of those three nucleotides, it would then predict the formation of a particular protein. So what this means is that the chromosome that is, again, inside the nucleus of the cell, those chromosomes, they do contain these nucleotides in an order of three. It might be ABC or BBB or any other random combination. But those three in that sequence would be responsible for the formation of a particular protein. So what does this really mean? What it means is that within the DNA is the instruction for the formation of proteins that are responsible for the formation of the cells, the tissues, and all the other components of life. When we think about the way that a baker might be making all sorts of different things in his or her restaurant, they will take flour, sugar, salt, and in different orders or in different quantities, they could make cakes or pies or breads or rolls or all sorts of different things. And this is really what the DNA does. The DNA has that instructional set of those three nucleic acids which would produce a protein and the formation of that protein would be responsible for creating a particular part of the eye. Or the protein that it produces would be a catalyst that would speed up the speed of reaction for that cell. So now that we kind of understand what is the DNA, we then have to think about it even in a larger scale because we know that one strand of DNA is going to be responsible for creating thousands and thousands of different types of protein molecules. But we also look more carefully within the human body and we see that cells may have 23 different types of chromosomes itself, 23 pairs of chromosomes. So as a result, we could see that with all of these different chromosomes, it results in the formation or the manufacturing of hundreds of thousands of proteins, and each of these proteins are going to be specifically important for the formation of the eye or the formation of a structure of the eye or to allow the eye to send a signal to the brain so that we could see it. Now, what's really so incredible about all of this is that if there is a sequence where three of those nucleic acids are not in the correct order, it will not produce one of the proteins that was necessary, and as a result, we may end up 
with a person who is blind. We may end up a person who has a cataract. We may end up with a person who has a genetic abnormality where they cannot tolerate certain types of foods or they can't process milk. So the sequence of those genetic nucleotides are so, so important because those proteins, again, they control so many different bodily functions as well as the formation of our eyes, our brain, our leg, our heart, and so many other components. So the first thing that we then have to ask is, well, what can cause these genes to become abnormal? What is it that might cause the sequence of those nucleic acids on that DNA to be in the incorrect order? Well, we know that there's a lot of different things that can be responsible for this kind of abnormal sequence. First, it could be that there's different types of insecticides. It could be that there's radiation. It could be that it's just a genetic abnormality because when cells reproduce themselves, sometimes there just might be a flaw. But with any of these types of difficulties in terms of the formation of an abnormal sequence, it will cause a genetic mutation and that genetic mutation will result in an abnormal, a not normal protein being produced, and that can affect the way that we see. Now, for myself, many of you may know that I do have a retinal condition, which is called cone rod degeneration. Many times we look at this particular type of disease, and we see that it is inherited. But in my family... I don't have any aunts or uncles or grandparents or cousins or nobody who has this particular type of a problem. So when I met with so many different doctors asking them, why did this happen to me? What do you think could have caused this genetic mutation? Do you think this genetic mutation is because maybe I watched television from too close of a distance? The doctor said, no, that really wouldn't have enough radiation to do that. If you're working behind an x-ray machine, possibly. But what did you do as a child? This probably happened early on as a child, and it then took many generations of the replication of these cells for this to happen. And I said, well, my parents have a nursery. And they said, did you spray insecticides and pesticides? And I said, all the time. I didn't only just spray it on the plants. I sprayed it on my brothers, and they sprayed it on me. I mean, we thought it was the funniest thing ever. And many of these pesticides were pesticides that are now banned. These are things that were previously in the 1970s sprayed over the city to try to eliminate different types of pests, and these are now banned substances. So as a result... I began to do research, and I think that it could be possible, I don't have proof, but it could be possible that one of the reasons that I developed a genetic mutation of these cells could be because of pesticides. Even more interesting to kind of talk about this whole aspect of genetics is that my father and my uncle, who both have nurseries, they both develop Parkinson's disease, and Parkinson's is also something that is thought to be related to pesticides. 
So the point to this is that there are many different things that might cause a genetic mutation, and these types of genetic mutations can affect the way that our body produces proteins, and it can affect the way that our skin or our ears or our eyes see. It could affect different functions of our life. Now, what are the things that we do know about gene therapy that makes it so exciting? Well, the things that I am just so excited about is that this recent development in gene therapy with a particular retinal condition called Leber's congenital amaurosis, it just really gives me so much hope for the future. What they basically did was that researchers found a particular breed of dogs that had a vision problem that was very similar to that of people with retinitis pigmentosa or a form of retinopathy, a retinitis pigmentosa called Leber's congenital amaurosis. Now with Leber's congenital amaurosis, this is a disease of the retina. Many times these children at a very young age, shortly after birth, they will have reduced peripheral vision, reduced night vision, and it could then later affect their central vision, causing them blurred sight. There is no surgical treatment for it. There is no particular type of medication that could treat that. So the researchers took these dogs, and they then studied these dogs by exploring the genetic nature of their gene pool. They were able to identify a particular gene abnormality that was found in all of these dogs that had this vision problem. Once they identified the main gene that was the problem among these dogs, they then had the great idea of using genetic engineering where they would splice in or they would use what is called an adenovirus to take a normal gene and then splice it into the virus and allow the virus to replicate the good gene as it is then inserted underneath the eye. And what they found was that for these particular dogs that did receive this type of gene therapy, dogs that were blind, that couldn't find a ball to play catch, were able to catch a ball and able to run and go through a course. So this was something that was really exciting, and later they began the clinical trials. Now, with clinical trials, you might hear this term quite often, but it's very important to understand that there are different phases of these clinical trials, and these clinical trials, they have to be very, very, very detailed with the application and who's going to be in the study and how do they monitor all of the test results. The first phase of a clinical study generally relates to testing whether the item that they're going to put into the eye or into the human being, is it something that is safe? They want to make certain that it's safe to put this particular drug or this gene or whatever they're going to do, they want to make certain that it's safe to put into the eye. The second phase of a clinical trial usually relates to using that tool or that medication or that gene, in this case, to see does it make any effect on improving the functional vision of those particular subjects. 
And then the last phase is the third phase where they then go ahead and try to repeat it. Is this something that is repeatable? So with the Lieber's congenital amaurosis trial, what they did is that they did find patients of different ages, and they then did a gene therapy testing where they looked at the analysis of the genes, and they found everybody that they chose for this study had an abnormal called the RPE65 gene. When a person had that particular type of RPE65 gene, they then went ahead and they inserted a piece of the healthy gene into the eyes of these children and adults, and they then later measured what their vision was. And the amazing thing is that through these particular trials, number one, they found that the gene therapy, it was safe. It was not where they were finding that the insertion of the gene caused the growth of a tumor or something that's very dangerous to the eye. Number two, in the second phase of the clinical trial, they then found that those who did receive that implant of that gene their vision improved, and the vision was better among children as compared to older folks. In other words, the treatment seemed to have a greater effectiveness for younger children as compared to older adults. And the third part of it is that they have been able to follow these people for a longer period of time, and they're finding that the results are still very, very encouraging, where it does show that those who do receive this particular type of RPE65 gene therapy, it does improve the vision. And when they had talked to some of the children who did have it, there was a young boy who had difficulty walking in a dark auditorium, and after the treatment, he's able to ride his bike at night. He could play ball inside of a dark auditorium. He had no problems walking from his seat all the way up there to the stage and it really has changed his life. So overall, at this point in time, the research is showing that gene therapy is one way that we know we can improve the vision of people who do have Leber's congenital arborosis in which it is the RPE65 gene that is abnormal. Now, the reason that I say this is that there are some children who do have Leber's congenital amaurosis, and the gene that causes their problem, it is not the RPE65 gene. So it's kind of interesting. We see that people can have the same eye disease, but it may be that a different gene is the abnormal one, and that different abnormal gene is not producing a protein and this is causing the cells of the eye to not function normally. The other thing that's very, very interesting from this entire model, it really shows the progression of how researchers can use animals. I know that it's very controversial, but many times people will say, we shouldn't be using animals. But in situations where they can identify particular types of breeds of animals, that do have these vision problems that are similar to those of humans, it is something that where we can use these animals in a very, very successful manner. Now, the other thing that has happened since the development of this gene therapy 
is that there is a doctor, Dr. Flannery, at UC Berkeley, and he was concerned about the fact that when genes are implanted into the eye using the adenovirus, one of the difficulties is how can you get the gene so that it's going to be covered throughout the entire retina? What would be the way that we could do that easier? You know, it's kind of like putting fertilizer on your lawn. You hope that you could get the fertilizer spread throughout your entire lawn so every area of your lawn would grow new grass. Well, what they found is that there is a new particular type of treatment where they have found that they could inject this particular component, I guess would be the best way to say it, directly into the center of the vitreous of the eye, and this will then allow the gene to diffuse to all areas of the retina. Now, this is very, very exciting because before it was where that the surgeon would have to use a needle and use a syringe and then inject the gene in a particular area. And by injecting it in too many areas, it could be very dangerous, whereas now it could be such that it is injected right into the center of the vitreous and it could then disperse itself to the different parts of the retina. Now, with this particular type of treatment, the main thing that we'll look forward to this is that it could then promote the cell growth and maintain the health of the cell in all areas of the retina, and people may then see that they have better central and peripheral vision. So the next thing that we'll talk about is what are some of the other types of research projects that are available that are looking at how gene therapy may help different types of eye conditions. Another one that is quite common among children is something that is called Stargardt's disease. And Stargardt's is a form of juvenile macular degeneration. For those of you who may be aware, the macula is the centermost region of the retina that is made up of cone cells. And these cone cells give us the ability to identify details and colors, and it gives us our ability to see quite well in the daylight. Well, there are many children who develop Stargardt's disease between the ages of 8 to 20 years of age, and these children often lose their ability to see small print. They can't recognize faces. They can't read the print on the chalkboard. They may not be able to see colors quite as well. And they also may be very, very sensitive to the glare and bright light. So one of the things that has also been identified is that there is an abnormal gene, and it's called ABCA4. And with ABCA4, this abnormal gene, this is also a situation where the abnormal gene is not producing the correct protein, and as a result, it affects the function of these cone cells. And by using gene therapy, this is another particular way that we may be able to insert the proper gene into the eye and it could be distributed throughout that entire central retinal region to restore the function within the macula. And this could then help those children and those adults who have macular degeneration due to an abnormal function of the ABCA4 gene. Now, you might then think, well, this would be great. My grandmother has macular degeneration. 
this could maybe restore her vision. And not quite. And the reason for that is because your grandmother or another elderly person who may have macular degeneration, their macular degeneration may be caused because of another gene or it could be because of an abnormal function of what is called the retinal pigment epithelium or it may be because there was a blood vessel that burst underneath the macula. So even though we see that there is this type of gene therapy studies going on, for the children with the juvenile macular degeneration, it's important to remember before that anyone may benefit from this type of procedure, we need to identify is the reason that this person has reduced macular function due to that particular type of gene. We also hear of a lot of research that's being performed for retinitis pigmentosa. Now, retinitis pigmentosa, it is very, very similar to Leber's, which we talked about first. But there are many, many more people with retinitis pigmentosa as compared to Leber's. And we know that there are many more genes that are the causative factor for retinitis pigmentosa. So we can go ahead and we could examine 100 different people with retinitis pigmentosa, and we will find that they have many, many different genetic differences, even though they all have the same visual complaints. They almost all will complain of tunnel vision, where they can't see through the corners of their eyes. They'll complain of night blindness. They'll complain of blurred vision. And even though they all have the same symptoms and we look at their eyes and their eyes will all show very similar findings, the causes of it are different as it relates to genetics. In some cases, the genetic inheritance might be where it is what is called autosomal dominant. And what that means is that this is a particular type of gene that does not function normally. And if mom or dad has a child and receives a bad gene from dad or mom, that child will develop that type of visual problem. So in autosomal dominant, if the child receives a bad gene either from dad or mom, then the child will have that type of visual problem. Now, with autosomal dominant RP, we see that it is something that is easier to identify because we find that grandpa has it, uncle has it, auntie has it, cousins have it. There are many people in the family who do have it. Another form of retinitis pigmentosa is what is called autosomal recessive RP. And this would be where of mother and a father would both have to give their child a bad gene. So let's say that dad has a good gene and a bad gene, and mom has a good gene and a bad gene, and when they have a baby, the baby happened to inherit the bad gene from each of them, that child will then have that type of vision problem. So for a child who has inherited this particular bad gene from each parent, they will have these particular types of visual symptoms, and these children, again, would be a very, very good candidate for gene testing. 
not only just for the fact of being a possible candidate to receive the gene therapy, but also for genetic counseling in the future by identifying which gene that that child has that is bad. And if that person then gets married and they do gene testing of the husband or wife-to-be, we could identify the gene in that husband or wife, and if that husband or wife does not have any negative or any bad genes, the genetic counselor could tell them the chances of you having a child with this disease, retinitis pigmentosa, would be extremely low because the person you are marrying doesn't show any abnormalities with that specific gene. So this is something that would really be very helpful to many couples as they're then going to be getting married. A third form of RP, retinitis pigmentosa, is called X-linked recessive. And when we talk about the chromosomes and the cells, some of the chromosomes that we do have are called sex-linked. And this is called an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. So when a girl is born, the girl has two X chromosomes, and the boy will generally have one X and one Y chromosome. So kind of repeat that. The girls usually have two X chromosomes, and the boys will have one X and one Y chromosome. So if a boy is born such that the X chromosome that he has is bad, then he will show that he has this kind of condition called RP because the bad X chromosome does not produce the protein that's necessary and the Y chromosome cannot produce the, nor- the needed protein. So as a result, that little boy does not have the normal protein and that boy will develop X-linked retinitis pigmentosa. Now let's say the same family has a girl and the girl gets one X chromosome that is bad but gets another X chromosome that is good. In this case, even though one X chromosome is bad and it does not produce the normal protein, the other X chromosome that the girl has is good and that good chromosome will make the correct protein and everything would be fine. So as a result, with the X-linked types of genetics, it usually affects the boys. It does not affect the girls unless it's a very, very rare case of some genetic changes that we won't get into for this. So retinitis pigmentosa, what we just talked about here, that there are three major different types of genetic forms of retinitis pigmentosa. And even though that these children often will appear or have the vision that is very similar to the child with Leber's congenital amaurosis, their treatment would be very different in terms of gene therapy because the causes of their vision problem are all different. For each of those cases, it's all different. But Once we identify which gene is the bad gene, then these children would be a candidate for gene therapy. A couple other examples of showing you who may also benefit from gene therapy are children with albinism. 
Now, albinism is a condition in which the eyes do not have the normal amount of color so that many of these children, when you look at their eyes, their eyes aren't blue or brown, but they're pink. And you look at their skin, you look at their hair, and it's completely pale. Well, for these children, they do not have the normal pigment in the eye. And there's studies that are showing that there are some very, very common correlations between the development of this pigment in the eyes and their genes. So with these gene studies, once we find more children who have this particular type of genetic pattern, we could identify whether or not these groups of children with albinism all have the same genetic abnormality, and then research can be performed where gene therapy is going to be introduced. One last one that I want to talk about real briefly is also called X-linked retinoschisis. And this is another type of condition that affects mainly boys, but the retina splits, and it splits from the center of the macula out to the outer edges. So for these children, it could be all of a sudden that they lose their vision, and it becomes very, very difficult for them to perform daily activities. So what does this mean? We do know already that ophthalmologists and optometrists, we can diagnose the specific eye disease of the child. We can say that this child has a cataract, this child has retinitis pigmentosa, this child has Leber's. We could do that. But just by only looking at the eye with our instruments and measuring the vision of the child, we cannot say anything about the genetic nature of this particular eye disease. And the reason for it is to look at the genes, we would have to look at the DNA inside the individual cells. So it's very important that if we do see a child who does have a particular type of problem, and if we see an adult who is just interested in learning more about their condition, that we explain and educate them about genetic testing. So the first question about genetic testing is, how painful is this? Is this the type of test that I need to go in and have surgery and you're going to cut out a section of my retina or a section of my eye? And to answer that, we say absolutely not. Gene therapy is something that is very, very simple with respect to any kind of inconvenience to the patient. Sometimes they may take a Q-tip swab of the inside of your mouth and they'll wrap that up and they'll send it away. In others, they may take a little bit of blood along with a swab and they send it into the lab. And from there, the researchers can then study the cells that were in the blood and in the cheek because we know that these particular cells that are inside one part of your body is also in the other parts. So in other words, by taking a genetic sample just from the cheek, we can understand what's the genes that are in the eye. And this is how they do it on CSI and other things where someone got a little bit of skin underneath the fingernail and they take that little sample and they can determine who the bad guy is. Now, the next question is, what about the cost? Is this something that's going to cost thousands and thousands of dollars? And the answer is no. 
there are different places that one can go and get gene testing for. In some cases, it may be free. Other cases, it may be two to $300. And then in some cases, it may be as much as $1,000. It depends on who you're going to be using to do your particular type of gene testing. The next thing is, well, how quickly might I get results? And the results to determine whether or not your form of disease is correlated with an identified chromosome already, it depends on which labs you use. There are some labs that will tell you between three to four weeks they can do it, and I have other patients who have used other labs and they haven't heard in over a year. Part of that is such that you, the patient, has to be on the phone and you need to ask them, you know, where, where's the results? What's going on with this? Because sometimes these researchers have so many different samples that I think that they may not really be looking specifically, okay, for John Smith, we found X, Y, and Z, and we want this person to be in a clinical trial. The people who are doing these types of gene testing are not necessarily there to recruit and to find people for the genetic clinical trial testing. Now, what about the gene testing, uh, the, the clinical trials that are available? Uh, there are different clinical trials that are available for different types of eye diseases. And if you go to a website, which is called clinicaltrials.gov, and that's clinicaltrials, C-L-I-N-I-C-A-L, trials, T-R-I-A-L-S.gov, there's a search box, and you could type in any particular type of disease, and it will then take you to all the different research studies that are being performed on that particular type of disease. Some of them, it will tell you specifically if this is a gene testing type of trial. Others, it might be that they're trying a different type of medication or another type of treatment. So if you yourself are interested in participating in a clinical trial, you could simply go to clinicaltrials.gov and to find out which of those particular studies are being performed. Now, what about getting your actual genetic testing performed yourself? How can you go about doing that? Well, I would recommend that you would consult with your ophthalmologist Specifically, if you do have an ophthalmologist that specializes in the diseases of the retina and vitreous, you can just tell them, I would really like to have my genetic testing performed to know what particular gene abnormality, if any, do I have that is causing my particular eye condition. Your doctor may know somebody who works at some of these labs, and they may be able to expedite it or you might be able to get things done in a particular order. Now, if you do not have a doctor who is completely familiar or does not do a lot of this type of gene therapy testing, one of the places that you can contact is a National Eye Institute, okay? And that's the National Eye Institute. And they have a website. It's www.nei.com. Dot N-I-H dot gov. Okay, so that's the National Eye Institute, which
which is part of the National Institutes of Health. Now, what's really great about this particular location, they're in Maryland, but they do these particular types of clinical testing of the genes, and most of the time it's for free. So this could save people money. The difficulty of it is the fact that they may not be as fast as some of the other smaller laboratories, and the amount of paperwork that you're going to fill out, it's going to be very, very extensive because all of this research is being put into computer pools so that they can make correlation studies. But the nei.nih.gov is a great website that you can learn more about the other types of gene testing. Now, another one that you can go to if you specifically have Lieber's congenital amaurosis, there is studies that are presently continuing on at Philadelphia Children's Hospital, and they are doing some very, very exciting work. I believe that UCLA over here in the West Coast is also part of that. But for Liebers, if you do have Liebers, you may then do a Google search for Project 3000. Project 3000, and this was something that was started years ago where they wanted to identify the genes of all 3,000 people in the United States with Liebers. And this is something that has grown quite quickly. Uh, the lab that many people with Liebers use is called Carver Lab, www.carver.lab.edu. And at Carver Lab, one can find a lot of information about other types of genetic testing that they are performing as well. So they, along with the University of Iowa, are, are very, very involved in this type of genetic testing. So in summary, I just hope that this evening we were able to educate you a little bit about this very, very complicated topic of genetics to help you to understand that the reason that one may have vision problems when it's related to an abnormal gene is that that small genetic abnormality causes the cell to not produce the correct protein. And without that correct protein, the eye or the visual response does not develop normally. There are many, many, many genes that have been identified to be the causes of many vision problems, such as macular degeneration, Stargardt's disease, Leber's congenital amaurosis, retinitis pigmentosa, albinism, X-linked retinoschisis, and so many other types of conditions that if you are one who has been afflicted with any of these conditions, it may be very beneficial for you to consult with your ophthalmologist and ask to have this particular type of gene testing done. The genetic testing, it's fast, it's quick, it's not painful, and this is something that can give you information that will help not only you, uh, but your family as well. Once you have received this data from the gene testing, you then want to sit down with your ophthalmologist and to then discuss, are there any clinical trials that might be worth your time to participate in? In some cases, your doctor might say, this looks very promising. 
But, as you know, with some of these tests, it's just a small sample size. They haven't done it on enough people to really say how conclusive or how successful it will be. But for many people, many people really want to take this opportunity to try to improve their vision. But I would also give you one other bit of suggestion. If you are visually impaired and you have one of these eye conditions, I would recommend that you also consult with a low vision optometrist or ophthalmologist. Your vision may be able to be improved significantly with the use of specialized glasses and visual aids. And by waiting maybe two or three or five years, the advances in the gene therapy could become even greater. Just like what I talked to you about with Dr. Flannery at UC Berkeley, and they now have a much better way to distribute the gene therapy within the eye as compared to what it was three years ago. So speak to your doctor, see a low vision doctor to see how they may help you, and don't be too much in a rush to move forward with that. So I hope that this information is helpful to you, and I want to thank Mr. Dick Burden from Airs LA, as always, for recording this. This will be available at www.airsla.org, also at the CCLVI website at www.cclvi.org, and also these will be on ACB Radio. So we hope that you tune into ACB Radio so that you can also listen to there. So uh, we hope that you all have a wonderful holiday season, and we look forward to having you with us in January, January 2014, when we're going to be talking about some of the different types of products that are very, very effective on Macintosh computers. So, Hi, Dr. Bill. Yes. I have a question. It's Elsa. And I am so thrilled I'm on this call because I have Lieber's congenital amaurosis. <laughs> oh, great. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. So I appreciate all the information. I just wanted to share. Um, I was diagnosed with Lieber's about five years ago as I was trying to apply to get my service dog. And it was at um, the low vision clinic at UC Berkeley um, while I lived in the Bay Area back then with uh, Dr. Verdon. He practiced a retinal um, electrogram, I believe. And um, to be honest, uh, I was pretty shocked because I went initially for uh, an eye evaluation and I had always thought and had been told um, that I had optic nerve hypoplasia. And so the um, ophthalmologist that I saw at Berkeley said, I don't think that's quite what you might have. I think it might be RP or Lieber's. So I'm going to refer you to Berkeley. And um, that's how I met Dr. Verdon. I went through the process, and then they told me I had Lieber's. To be honest, it was heartbreaking because um, I just didn't know what to think or, or what to believe, thinking I had something else all my life yeah. and now being told something different. So um, it was, how do I explain it? In a sense, um, I had a brief moment where I said, what do I believe now? <laughs> so um, the fact that there are the possibilities of um, having uh, gene testing um are very exciting. 
I have to say I'm in no rush um, to think about receiving any kind of teen therapy. It actually frightens me a little bit, if I may be completely honest. Um, the reason is because I consider I have uh, a good amount of vision, not perfect, but, um, I mean, if I compare it to someone who might not have any vision, I feel quite fortunate and just the concern, the idea of possibly losing some through um, some of these tests uh, has been there, but you've definitely clarified some of my my questions and my uh, doubts. Yes, well, boy, that's a very, 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 very interesting story, the things that you've experienced. And it also shows that many times doctors, we don't know. We might look mm-hmm. at a person's eye and maybe the optic nerve looks a little small, but it often looks small in many children, and without actually performing the appropriate test, one may not diagnose levers. And to be quite frank, there are probably many eye doctors who have never, who have never seen a patient with levers. And mm-hmm. uh, this this is why the people who are more trained in the areas of low vision generally have more of that type of experience. But I, I'm really glad to hear you say that you're not just going to jump into something too quickly because, again, if you do have vision, then your level of vision that you have right now is very helpful. And it by go, going into something that is still experimental, all of these clinical trial studies, they are still research-oriented. They're not proven yet. So... Um, going into a clinical trial, I, I tell people, you know, don't rush into that too much. So I, I, I really commend you. More than being concerned about pain, because it has crossed my mind in terms of any sort of medical procedure, my, my biggest concern has been that, whether I would uh, lose any of my vision. And I was told that um, perhaps with time um, I could lose more vision, uh, gradually uh, to the point of losing all my vision, how quickly or how much vision is unknown. I was told that it varies from person to person. Um, I was told that I um, could have inherited this from my parents, and you explained about them uh, inheriting a, a bad gene. Now, does this take one parent or two parents, um, you know, to inherit a bad gene to, to cause uh, leapers? Well, again, with Liebers, as with many other types of eye conditions, the first thing is that we would want to find out uh, which genes are involved with it. So, in other words, Mm -hmm. it could be that for a particular type of abnormal gene, you only have to inherit it from one parent. I see. Whereas another type of Liebers, it might be that you have to inherit it from both. And uh, when many families undergo this type of testing... Um, the mom and dad will often have their eyes tested first, mm. where it would be that That's they would... be another challenge. <laughs> I'm not know. sure they'll be willing to, to go through that, to be you know, honest. And, and part of it, is, again, it means that they would take a little sample of blood, a little Q-tip mm-hmm. in their mouth, and that's it. They just send that into the lab, you know. So those those are some of the different things that can be discussed with them further. But uh, right. it, it, it is it is something that would be many in many ways helpful for your parents to actually mm-hmm. hear from a genetic specialist about this too, 
because many times as parents we may feel guilty. Gosh, did I give this to my child? But when they learn this whole concept of genetics, or we're talking about the odds of one little nucleotide being different, there's nothing that your mother nor your father could have done to have altered that. And it's the same thing for myself. I, I say, you know what? I didn't know that fertilizers and pesticides and things could be dangerous. I know that for years we didn't know that it was dangerous to put mercury fillings in the mouths of people. There's a lot of things that we do that can be genetic altering, but uh, we we often didn't know it, so we really can't put any blame. It could be many reasons as to why that happened. If you are interested in in getting that type of genetic testing and things like that, uh, it would probably be very interesting for you to contact, uh, you know, the Carver Lab. Mm -hmm. Great. Now, you had mentioned that some of these testings have proven to be a little more successful with children. Uh, I'm in my early 30s. I just don't know. Um, Perhaps the Carver Lab could provide more information in regards to how beneficial it might be for someone in my age range. Yes, and, you know, the first thing, again, it gets to be so exciting when we hear about gene therapy, but the first step is that the only studies that have really been shown to be this type of uh, successful study are those for people who have levers that's due to the RPE65. Right. So we would first need to find out, is your levers the type that is caused by the RPE65? And if right. you were to give a sample of your blood and let them take a swab of your cheek, they would be able to determine that, even without even looking inside your eye. I see. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, and I now know how to start this whole process of trying to just learn more about my visual impairment, if anything, and uh, how to uh, research in case I happen to date and marry a gentleman who is visually impaired as well, because I've dated men who are both uh, fully sighted and visually impaired, and that's always something that's been, you know, uh, in the back of my mind if, if I were to become a mother. Um, how to make it possible where there are fewer chances that my child would not be born with a visual impairment um, is possible. So I greatly appreciate all all the information, all the help, and it's been great listening to all of this. And I have to say, um, even if I were to decide not to go through or to go through this gene therapy, I'm just very... Uh, feel very fortunate with the vision I do have and the skills I've gained and just the independence that I have. So that's why I value and want to take care of the vision I have as much as possible. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. And just just from speaking to you, I could tell you're a very intelligent woman. You're very, very kind. You have a wonderful mind. And as long as we have a mind that we could think and make decisions and be rational, we have nothing to fear. I right. had so much fear of going blind. Now that I'm totally blind, I realize that all of my fears were just so wrong. <laughs> I, I do so many things that 
I never thought that I would be able to do, that I realized all of those things that I thought I would not be able to do, it all just came from my mind. It, it, it had no truthful basis from it. So right. you you will you will do fine, and your children will do fine, just that they inherit other other aspects of your genetics, as well as just from being with you. Uh, you're a great person to role model after. So thank you, I appreciate it, and I um, do believe that uh, they would be very fortunate because they would have a lot more uh, tools, a lot more things available for them if that were the case that I didn't have as a child. And if I've been able to succeed in so many things, I'm sure that they would be able to do the same. Um, and no doubt I would not love them any less for that. But yeah. um, it is definitely just something that uh, anyone, I'm sure, um, especially uh, it's been heard of that women with their paternal instinct want to make sure that, you know, they're their children um, come to this world as healthy as possible. So um, I'm just trying to educate myself more about all of this and and, uh, being more informed. Well, that's wonderful. That's really great. And, you know, if you have questions or anybody else out there has questions, please remember you could contact me at my email address is drbillfoundation, as D-R-B-I-L-L foundation, at gmail.com. Okay, so that's all the time we have for this evening, but I want to thank you, and we hope that we'll all see you again in January 2014. Good night, everybody.